VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshatrati. This week, weather data, volcanic skies, and conflict in Timbuktu. Here in the UK, chatting about the weather is basically national pastime. When is it going to rain? When will we see the sun again? And why have we gone through all four seasons before lunch? And thanks to weather forecasting, we can have those conversations not just with good humor, but also a good level of confidence. We get these forecasts because the UK has a network of more than 400 weather stations spanning the length of the country, from the Orkney Islands in the far north to the Scilly Isles in the south. The data the weather stations like these collect are invaluable. It influences the decisions of governments and companies around the world and can be used to make models that predict energy consumption, harvests, and even when countries might go to war. As my colleague at Bloomberg Green, Laura Milan, puts it, What they do is really important because this data fits then into all these climate models, into the research that climate scientists do to try to figure out how the world works today. And this is the data key to figure out how it will change in the future. When it comes to making climate models, the more data you have and the longer you've been collecting it for, the better those models become. But weather stations are also expensive to set up and maintain. And many countries can't afford them in great numbers. Without these stations, it becomes difficult to provide accurate weather forecasts and makes it even harder to work out how a country will be affected by climate change. And while the UK benefits from an abundance of weather stations, many countries in Africa are severely lacking the resources to produce reliable weather and climate data. This week, Laura tells the story of weather station 61223 in Timbuktu and what its sudden closure means for the people of Mali and climate science across the African continent. The story starts with the Arab Spring, which sparked revolutions across North Africa, and ends with how the lack of African weather data will affect the discussions at COP27. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell me about weather station 61223. Weather station 61223 was one of five weather stations in Mali that had been active for more than 100 years. And these stations that have been operating for more than 100 years, they're really valuable because the data that they provide is very consistent through time. This station in particular was uh, close to the airport in Timbuktu. It was set up by the French colonialists. And it was in a very discreet building, concrete building near the airport. So, you know, no signs, no anything. One could have confused it with a warehouse or, or something like that. When I think of Timbuktu, the thing that comes to mind is how Bollywood treats it. Timbuktu, <laughs> 
So from India, many Bollywood songs have the word Timbuktu in there, and it's treated as this like far, far away place, which many people don't think is real. Right. And I think it's the way it resonates in people's imagination. You talk about Timbuktu in Europe and it's also this faraway place, this city in the middle of the desert that no one has been to. It's a bit mythological even, but it's an actual place. It's an actual city. It's a home to around 30,000 people. It's uh, next to the Niger River in northern Mali. And the reason why there are so many stories around it is because it used to be the capital of an ancient empire and it used to be a center for knowledge and culture, especially religious studies in the Middle Ages. And so this weather station 61223, why did it go silent and after a hundred and some years? Well, the reason is that the staff had to abandon it. The people that were maintaining it, that were taking the data, maintaining the equipment, making sure everything was running smoothly, that they had been doing that for many years. They had to run, they had to flee Timbuktu. And the reason why this happened starts in 2011 with the Arab Spring. When Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire 10 years ago, he couldn't have known that his suicide in Tunisia would ignite the entire region. When uh, the regime of Muammar al-Gaddafi collapsed in Libya, many of the desert tribes that Gaddafi had been sponsoring and supporting through the decades had to flee and became rebel fighters. Over the last few years, Mali has had a problem with militancy. In October 2011, ethnic Tuaregs, mostly from the north of the country, launched a rebellion. So one of these groups is the National Movement for the Liberation of the Azawad and their Tuareg fighters. And what this group did was surround the city of Timbuktu. And on the 1st of April 2012, they entered the city and took over it, took over the main institutions. Then a few days later, the jihadis of a radical Islamic group called Ansardin followed in and they were waving the black flags that were later characteristic of the Islamic State in wow. Syria and in other places. So that meant that radical Islamists had taken over the city of Timbuktu and that made the employees of the state from, you know, top, top government officials to the people that were just maintaining the weather station 61223, they made them enemies of the invaders. And so they had to flee. And so what you're describing is the start of the Mali war, which is still ongoing. And there have been multiple coup d'etats that have happened since. But when this happened in 2012, what was going on in the minds of the people who were working on this weather station? Well, I didn't talk directly with the people that were working on the station, but I did talk to the person in the meteorological agency in Mali who was responsible for these people. Avant le coup d'état, donc au nord du Mali, il y avait des terroristes qui avaient and obviously there was great concern. You have to imagine seeing all this news from Bamako, from the capital, all this news coming in. It wasn't an immediate conquest. So the forces from the Tuareg uh, surrounded the city for a few days. The elders from Timbuktu went out and started to negotiate with them to make sure that they wouldn't destroy some of the city's valuable um, ancient monuments and so on. So this went on for a few days and obviously rumors came into the capital. And so this person from Mali's meteorological agency 
his first concern was to get the people out of there. Obviously, it was very important that Mali had a centennial weather station there, but it wasn't more important than the lives of that people. So he made sure he got them out of Timbuktu safely. And luckily, he did that. Now, let's talk about this weather station. Why is it that it's so important to have had that weather station there? So for any weather station, the most important thing is not just that the data that it gathers is accurate, but that that data at any moment in time can be compared with data that has been recorded previously, right? The weather stations that have been running for more than 100 years, that's why they're really relevant. They're, they're considered like, the most the most valuable ones because they allow scientists to compare what's happening today with what used to happen decades and, and more than a century ago. So the loss of weather station 61223 was tragic, not just because of that, but because there really there are very few of those in Mali and in Africa. So if a centennial station was lost, let's say in uh, China, where there are actually many, or in Europe or in Russia, then it's always a tragedy because the source of information gets lost. But in Africa, where there are very, very few of them, then that's an actual problem because that means that the set of data that this station has been gathering through time gets discontinued. So scientists don't have a way anymore of, of knowing what's happening in that place. And even immediately, because this weather station is collecting local data and also helping local people, even immediately after going offline, there were impacts, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's not just a long-term thing for climate scientists to, to understand a phenomenon that might run for decades or for many years, but it's actually weather stations have a very immediate application. And in the case of uh, station 61223, it was very important because it helped understand when a very strong gusts of wind would come through the desert into Lake Debo, which is uh, Mali's largest lake. And so when the people around the lake would receive an alert from the weather station that this kind of extreme weather was coming, they were able to alert local fishermen and then people traveling in pinas, which are uh, kind of long boats that people traveling, that people use to transport goods and transport themselves even. So in 2011, about 10 people died in wind-related incidents in around Lake Debo, but that number increased to 70 in the year after Station 6 one to two, three went offline. So went from 10 to 70 wow. just because that station wasn't able to alert the people around the lake. Zooming back, there's the local phenomena which we talked about, but losing data from weather stations anywhere in the world, but more so in places like Mali, where there are so few, also has international impacts, right? Yeah, absolutely. So all these data, all these tiny data points that weather stations gather every day, I think about them like little ants, right? Like they do their work every day. They do always the same. It's not very shiny, but... What they do is really important because this data fits then into all these climate models, into the research that climate scientists do to try to figure out how the world works today, how the climate of the world works today, how it's changing and 
this is the data key to figure out how it will change in the future. Right. And so this weather data sort of becomes the anthill and the anthill certainly is a thing of marvel. We know there was a very recent study earlier this year where they found that only 5% of the deaths caused by heat happened in tropical countries where 85% of people live. And that just is astonishing because that shouldn't be statistically right. And when we asked a scientist about it, uh, she said, that's ridiculous. And the reason is because we don't have data. That's right. And there is another study, actually, that looked at heat waves around the world. And it found that in uh, around the, the Sahara region, there were no heat waves. No heat waves had happened, according to researchers. But that wasn't the case, obviously. In the world's biggest desert, there are heat waves. The problem is that there are no weather stations to record them. Now, for the story, you produced a map, which I remember because it was a stunning map. And it noted the density of weather data stations around the world. And as with many other things, the continent of Africa, not just a few countries, but the continent of Africa was dark. Yes. And that's like a very obvious way of showing that there are very, very, very few weather stations in Africa. In particular, Mali has, I said before, it used to have five centennial stations, four after the one that we've mentioned in Timbuktu went dark. but in total, it has 13 active weather stations compared to Germany, for example, in Europe, a country that's one third the size of Mali. Germany has almost 200 main weather stations. So that's more than 10 times what Mali has. And then it's not just a matter of quantity, but also of quality. So the World Meteorological Organization says that weather infrastructure in Africa is deteriorating very fast. Only 22% of the stations met global reporting standards in 2019. And again, this, this represents a very big problem for the scientists trying to study the phenomenon, weather phenomenon and climate phenomenon going on in, in Africa and in the rest of the world. So this uh, lack of data... How is that feeding into or not feeding into climate science that looks at global phenomena and looks at many different time periods? So the data is necessary to produce climate science and all the scientific papers are gathered once every five years by the IPCC into climate reports. The problem is that if there is no data from Africa, the representation Africa has on reports, very important reports like the IPCC is very, very small. Now, what's being done about the situation? The good thing about all of this is that there's a lot of very smart people trying to fix this issue. One of the difficulties of this problem is that national meteorological organizations in Africa are often underfunded. And setting up a station that is valid for the WMO, that can take reliable weather data, is not cheap. It can cost more or less around $20,000 for every station just to set it up. And then it comes maintenance and right. the staff needed um, to maintain it. Weather stations are not always a priority. If you have a government that's struggling with conflict in the case of Mali or with natural disasters uh, in the case of many other African nations, then weather stations figuring out how hot or how cold or how humid it is in certain places doesn't necessarily 
come on top of mind for for the people governing right. these you nations. You would use that money, $20,000 is a lot of money, That's to do it. things that are really important on the ground as needed. That's it. And, and, and that are more urgent or that feel more important. Like, for example, you set up schools or you set up food relief programs or any any sort of, of program that solves an immediate need, whereas often the weather and climate are seen as something that's almost a luxury. But there is technological progress that's happening, that's helping. Yes, that's right. So what's been happening in the past few years is that technology has made some of these instruments used to measure climate or and weather data. It's made them cheaper and it's also made it possible for these instruments to actually send the data remotely. So you wouldn't need a person doing the maintenance or being there every day, all day recording the, the sets of data. One of the people I found in my reporting is uh, Nick van der Giesen. He's a professor in the Netherlands and he has set up something called the Trans-African Hydrometeorological Observatory. And this is a network of weather stations across Africa. They can work remotely, they use modern equipment and they, they are much, much cheaper than the traditional ones. And how much cheaper are we talking here? So we've said that a traditional weather station costs $20,000. Their goal, Tahmo's goal, is for one station to cost around $200. Wow, that's a lot. Cheaper. That's a lot cheaper. And they're not there yet. So they've been able to produce weather stations at a price of around $2,000. And they have installed around 600 of these across Africa. Since you reported this story last year, have there been any updates? Yes and no. The main headline is that station 61223 is still offline. When I talk to the people at Mali Meteo, hmm. what they told me was that bringing it back online would require a significant investment because this sort of equipment is very delicate. And so when it goes offline for a while and no one maintains it, then it requires either huge maintenance or just completely new equipment. That hasn't happened. The security situation in Mali hasn't improved either, so people might have read in the news how French troops and troops from the European Union have left Mali as well. And actually one thing that happened is that I wanted to go physically to Mali to report on this story and just a few weeks, I think even just a few days before I was uh, thinking about that trip and, and trying to figure out how the logistics would work. A French journalist was kidnapped by uh, rebel groups. And then that meant that the, the safety of journalists in that part of Mali could not be guaranteed. So we could never travel there. After the break, are Timbuktu's historical records the answer to Mali's lack of weather data? And what does the lack of accurate climate models across the continent of Africa mean for discussions of loss and damage? Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? 
BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Of course, weather stations aren't the only way in which we can gather data. Of course, current data is gathered from weather stations. But um, there are other approaches to try and understand what's happening to the continent, right? Absolutely. And one way to do that, and it's not just in Africa, it's being done everywhere, are historical documents. So if you go back in time, people have been recording what the weather has been like for hundreds and even thousands of years. And there are clues in historic documents. In the case of Mali and of Timbuktu specifically, Timbuktu was a cultural center and one of the main cities in in North Africa. So people would go there to study many, many things and they would leave written record of what was going on. There are some stunning architectural buildings that still stand in Timbuktu. Yeah, absolutely. And they're they're actually protected by UNESCO. So they, they're ancient shrines and churches that could be visited. And they're of a characteristic architecture made with mud, very, very typical of Timbuktu. And so what used to happen in around the 16th century is that people, like I said, they would travel for weeks and for months through the desert to learn from the wise men in the city. They would learn everything from Islamic theology, history, philosophy, anything. And then the city was also a crossroads for tribes that lived in the desert. So you can think that there used to be lots of camel caravans and that would carry salt and gold, even slaves across the desert, and they would be traded in Timbuktu. That left a very big paper trail in the form of manuscripts that described what life was like at the time and that tried to register things from agricultural techniques and objects obviously, the weather. So we have these historical documents from centuries ago uh, that have detailed weather conditions in them. Have we ended up using them in some form? Not yet. And that's another fascinating part of the story and and something I find fascinating about uh, Timbuktu. And it's that what we call the Timbuktu manuscripts that people might have heard or read about them is a huge collection of documents, not just from Timbuktu, but from the whole region that have been preserved within families for centuries. So families will be guardians or custodians of a certain set of documents that gets passed through generations. And academics have only started to scratch the surface of the wisdom and the contents of these manuscripts. So I talked to some researchers in the U.S. that are um, digitalizing these documents. So basically scanning them and making sure they don't get lost, they don't get burned or stolen or anything like that. And then analyzing the contents. They have made it possible for people to search online uh, certain keywords on the on these documents. So if If you do that search for rain, for example, you'll be able to find that there are a bunch of documents that mention rain and rain changes and so on. But no one, as far as I know, has gone as far as to 
put that into scientific research. But that has been done um, with ancient documents in European nations like Germany and the UK. Um, people have gone to monasteries and looked at the annotations of what the weather was like centuries ago and, and produced scientific research out of this. So it's certainly possible to find better models eventually once this data has been translated into a usable form. Yes, absolutely. It won't be as thorough as if you had had someone recording the temperatures every day for the past 500 years or water levels for the past 500 years, which, you know, there are places in the world that have been recording for many centuries. But at least you can have an idea on whether rivers were bigger or smaller, whether rain was more frequent, the winds, etc. And then that could help scientific research, definitely. So there's the story which I find fascinating, which is in 1815, Mount Tambora, which is a huge volcano, went off and put all these sulfur-related um, compounds into the atmosphere, caused uh, what is now known as the year that had no summer across the world. There were famines, deaths, etc. But it also changed art because researchers have now analyzed paintings from that era, compared them to the pre-1815 era, and essentially the skies turned more orange because there was more sulfur and that's what the painters were reflecting in their paintings. So there's all these downstream impacts that happen from weather and are they are recorded in these weird forms, which may not be data, but it's still data if you want to interpret it that way. Yeah, and maybe we're going a bit off topic, I don't know, but um, there's also research on the legends that Aboriginal Australians tell each other and have been telling each other for millennia, because you might know that Aboriginal Australians are the longest running people or, or civilization on earth. And researchers have analyzed what they thought were legends and found that they actually tell the story of the land. And so that these stories correspond with changes on rivers and mountains and on the sea that actually happened ages and ages ago. It's not just weather stations recording the changes and, and the data. There's These changes can be found everywhere. Now we are about to head into another COP meeting, which is this annual climate conference that the UN organizes. This time it's in Egypt in November, called COP27, because it's the 27th time it's happening. And it's the fifth time it's been hosted by a country uh, in Africa. How does the lack of good weather data fit into this international climate discussions and negotiations? It's at the heart of it, because if you don't have the data, then there is no discussion possible. We tend to say that Africa is the continent suffering the most from climate change, but the one that has contributed less to it. So the second part, the we know for a fact that it's the one that has contributed less to it. The first part of the sentence, it's suffering the most, is the hard one to prove because we have this intuition, but actually there isn't that much hard data on it. And the reason is, again, weather stations. So if you don't know whether a heat wave is happening or why people are dying in a certain place or why crops are failing, then it's really hard to attribute these effects to climate change. And so a lot of what will be discussed in COP this year will 
hopefully be around that, around the need to have better data coming from Africa in order to know more the effects of climate change and what's happening there. And then the other effect that, that the lack of data is having is that in the IPCC reports, there is lots of research reflected on America and Europe and developed nations, but then developing nations have less of an importance because of that lack of data. Something that's happened over the last few years that's really changed the way we talk about climate change is this phenomena of attribution studies where climate scientists can look at an extreme weather event, maybe that's a heat wave, maybe it's a flood, and tell you just how much worse they were made by climate change. Yes, and again, Africa, it's so important to have these sorts of studies about things that happen in Africa, about extreme weather events in Africa, and we're not seeing them. And again, we're not seeing them because we don't have the data to produce these studies. And the implications of that are huge. It's not just a matter of scientific knowledge, but African nations, and this is going to be a really important issue at COP27, at that meeting you mentioned before in, in Egypt in November, African nations, one of the things that they want is something that, again, sorry to bring up the jargon, but it's something called loss and damage, which is the developing nations suffering from the effects of climate change should be compensated by developed nations that caused climate change in the first place or that are the main contributors to climate change. But if you cannot prove that something has been caused by climate change, then how can you get compensated, right? right. So this is why, again, data is so important. So you can produce studies, including attribution studies, that would then later allow a country to go to the developed nation and say, these extreme events, say a heat wave or um, a typhoon or a storm or a flood or anything, caused uh, this amount of damage to my GDP, to my um, crop production, X amount of deaths, of uh, that number of people lost their homes, like all these very tangible, very real effects. And I have this scientific paper which has been peer-reviewed and authored by reputable scientists saying this event was made much worse by climate change. So how are you planning to compensate me? So if a country cannot do that, then the injustice in the system remains. What's a climate story that you found meaningful? I think the story that changed the way I see climate and the way I see climate journalism was the first story that I read about how climate had impacted and contributed to the Arab Spring. So that's when I started to think that climate and climate change had a huge impact into everything that happens in our lives in a small way, but also in a big way. And there's a more personal connection there because the Arab Spring is what drew you into journalism. That's it. Um, I Well, I was a journalist before, but I happened to be in Cairo when the Arab Spring broke. I wrote about it for two years and I am slightly ashamed to say that I never made the climate connection. It was later when the reports started to come out about how, if I remember well, 2008 had been a really dry year and that drought had continued and had impacted wheat prices and how bread had become more expensive. That's when I made the connection. But 
Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a very personal side to it that this event that I lived in such an intense way was so affected by climate change and I just lived through it without realizing it. A lack of good climate data might sound like a wonky subject, but as Laura's reporting shows, it has huge consequences for those without it. Access to good weather data should be as much a part of climate justice discussions as, say, ensuring coal miners are not left behind or developing countries have enough funding to move to clean energy. For more, you can read Laura's story on Bloomberg.com green. It's also linked in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. Tell a friend or write it in a diary that may be found in 500 years. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Many people help make the show a success. This week, thanks to my colleague at Bloomberg Green, Eric Roston, who has everything in his brain that I wish I had. I'm Akshat Rati, back next week.